Thought Leadership from PwC's National Office Studios. We're really seeing that this period has been a test of cultures. And for companies that had really distinctive cultures, their culture was the hero of this period. Understand and ignite the emotional sources of pride in your organization. What gets people excited to come to work? Tap into that and use that to, to drive the performance issue. Those are my guests. Christopher Hannigan, a principal with PwC's Workforce Transformation, and Gus Stockman, a partner with PwC's Organization Strategy. This is Heather Horn, and thanks for joining me for the next episode of our Forecast 2021 podcast miniseries. How can your company become the best place to work? The secrets in building a great workplace culture. So in today's episode, we're talking about the cultural traits of highly successful teams and how to adjust your people's strategy to change how things get done and to support your goals. So Christopher and Gus, looking forward to our conversation today about culture and maybe some intersection with strategy. But I thought to kick things off just to level set for the listeners, it'd be nice to understand some background about exactly what your practice is and where, um, how you got into this field. So Christopher, I'll start with you. Yeah, thanks, Heather. So fun to be here. So I specialize in culture and organizational change and really the intersection of the two, because we have found over the years that when you're trying to change and go through transformation, understanding the culture of your company is just, is it makes or breaks it. It's so critical. I've been in this field for almost 28 years. I started actually as a journalist because I wanted to understand how to be curious and inquire and like extract things from people and how to communicate. And I've just built on that over time. I've worked both in-house as well as for a few different consulting firms. All right. Well, I definitely already have questions for you, but before I do that, Gus, how about you? Yeah. Hi, Heather. Excited to be here and uh, excited to, to be chatting with my partner, Christopher, as well. Um, you know, I come at it more from an operating model angle. So I kind of focus at the intersection of strategy, operating model, and culture, and how you kind of align those to come together and, and deliver on your business strategy. Um, and so often with my clients, uh, we come in and we say, you know, what capabilities are critical for you to differentiate in the market? Therefore, what kind of operating model do you have? And how do you take culture and use that to align those, to engage those, and to drive, uh, drive those to be more effective? Um, and uh, I, I kind of came to it, um, you know, organically, you know, doing transformations, doing operating model and strategy projects. Like Christopher said, culture is the make or break. And so as I saw some of the projects go well, as I saw some of them fail, I started to see, oh, this is really important. Uh, and also, clients know it's important. They don't always want to engage the culture or they don't know how. And so it's become more and more important to kind of emphasize the importance of culture, how to align it, how to use it in a tangible way. And uh, before consulting, I was in the Army. So I got to see a lot of uh, you know different uh, ways of operating, a lot of different cultures. And you know, in the Army, it's all about leadership and culture. That's the number one kind of capability that the army has. So got to feel it a lot more organically. And, and uh, I went to West Point undergrad. And so that that also huge emphasis on leadership and culture and how those come together to achieve a mission. 
Okay, Gus, you Gus, you have to know I was born in the hospital at West Point. So we have like, yet another connection. Yes. I did not know that. Yes. yes. Oh, that's so interesting. Did you have a military connection? My father or... my father was in the army. Yes. And he oh, was that's there. awesome. Yep. Oh, very cool. Okay. All right. See, we already have common yeah. ground. We have our own little culture on this podcast. There we go. So just given everything going on in the world today, have you guys ever seen a time when there's been so much potential change from culture within various organizations? Well, Heather, what we're seeing is that this past, you know, 16 or 17 months of the pandemic has actually brought out a lot of things that were existing in companies' cultures. So, for example, um, for many organizations that had to shift to remote working, it brought out this incredible spirit of collaboration and camaraderie and quicker decision-making. And a lot of companies have said, wait a minute, there's something really good and interesting happening. And this is like, this thing has been in our culture all along, but the change in working conditions has brought it out, brought it to the surface. And a lot of companies are very smartly asking, how do we bottle that great thing up so we can keep doing more of it when working conditions, you know, may change again. Um, so we're really seeing that this period has been a test of cultures. And actually, and we'll get into this in a few minutes, but for companies that had really distinctive cultures, their culture was the hero of this period. And, you know, the, you know a couple of examples of that that I saw of this kind of culture being the hero culture breaking down barriers, culture um, allowing you to achieve your strategy. We had a client who they had uh, their bank tellers, they retrained them right away to be call, call center agents. And so that ability to retrain, that ability to be kind of nimble um, really came to the forefront. And you know, it also forced a lot of people to use technology that they never used before and learn these new ways of working. Um, and so it's kind of, it kind of forced a lot of agility and technology use that, that has accelerated things. You know, the other, the other thing that I think throughout the last 10 years, uh, you know, there's been so much technology change that it's kind of forced every business, not just a business where technology is a business. It's forced everybody to be, to figure out how to be more nimble, um, to, to figure out how to be more agile. Uh, and for finance functions, especially, that's one of the things that most finance functions I work with struggle with how to be more innovative, how to be faster while maintaining all the quality that a finance function needs. So um, you know, there's a, this trend and, and I'll, Sarah Roberts is a great kind of culture thinker as well. She has a book called nimble, focused and feisty that talks about how to become more agile, how to be more nimble. Um, that's been a theme for everybody, but especially, uh, for finance functions. You've talked about the fact that this brought out a lot of agility in organizations, more use of technology, new ways of working, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I've seen this even in my own team and the people that I interact with. I think there's a mix of people who like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. Can we please continue to work in some of these new, new ways? And then other people who are like, and maybe I'll take your bank tellers. Hey, I was okay being trained as a call center agent because I knew it was important right now, but can we please go back <laughs> to how things used to be? And so are you also dealing with that as you're dealing with organizations in terms of there's almost like maybe two directions people want to go again, thinking of office workers and, but you know, you gave an example here of these bank tellers too. So it impacts a lot of different people. Yeah. So we are seeing a lot of organizations we're seeing a lot of differences in terms of what executives prefer and what the workforces and, and the employees prefer as it relates to 
um, you know, return to office environment or increased flexibility going forward. And if I have to generalize, and, and according to some studies we've done, there's a huge gap between what senior leaders want and what their workforces want. And this is going to cause, it's already causing a lot of tension and stress. And there are certainly a number of companies out there um, that have attempted to kind of get employees back to the office in a very perhaps um, unilateral or heavy handed way. And their employees have revolted. And that's, that's not a great, that's not a great place to be in. Um, And I think, you know, what we're finding is the importance is around like, let's not just make a decision. Let's actually have a discussion listen to our workforce, understand what's important to them, look at the business model we have and say, like, given the business we're in and what we have to execute on, could we listen to our employees and deliver some of the things they're telling us they want? For some companies, indeed, that is not possible. But I think what's really critical here is the act of engagement between leaders and the workforces. Yeah. And what Christopher highlighting is, is we're seeing this kind of authenticity gap where uh, you know the leaders are maybe saying one thing, doing another, or uh, they don't share the same values as their workforce, and that's that's been causing problems. And I think part of part of what you, you were saying is uh, just a general resistance to change, right? People, some people don't ever want to change, and it's kind of the the classic change, you know, build the case for change, hear people out, understand them, you know, work with and within some of those challenges, kind of always exist and isn't unique to the uh, to the pandemic. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I was talking to one of my um, friends last week and I said, oh, you know, we're going to start going back to the office. I'm not so sure, blah, blah. And they're like, Heather, you were so upset when you had to start working from home. Like it was like that change was hard. <laughs> this change was hard. So um, all, all ch- I'm definitely in the camp of change. It's hard. But Oh, and another, just, yeah. I, this reminded me, um, there, another aspect of this that's very unique and newer, I think, is this, uh, is inclusion. And particularly, there's a couple things in terms of return to work, uh, maybe outside of culture a little bit, but that are important to think about. One is I've been working with a lot of clients that are thinking of inclusion from a, uh, this is kind of spicy, but vaccinated or non-vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Do you mandate that? Do you, how do you treat those employees? Do you make sure that you're being inclusive? Um, and then the second thing that's come up a lot in the in the survey, and I don't know, Christopher, if you maybe uh, have a view on this, is um, you know bringing women back to the workforce, and how do you think through uh, maybe more childcare benefits or different different ways to think about it, so you can uh, you can bring the people back. Because I'm personally worried, and I know a lot of my clients are worried about uh, women coming back to the workforce. Yeah, you're exactly right, Gus. And I would say there is a whole uh, just portion of the workforce whose voice is really being mostly left out of this. And that's people who might have mobility issues or who might have other issues Mm -hmm. when you are actually your little box on a screen alongside everybody else. It's an equalizer. And, and suddenly things that might limit you in an environment where you have to physically be in an office are, are no longer there. And so there's a, there's a, there's a, a very silent, you know, group of people, mostly silent who like for them, this period of remote working has been, unbelievably liberating and has given them this taste of of inclusion and equality that is 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 going to go away once everyone's brought back and so i think this is a great example of you know companies just need to be thinking about what is this going to look like for all these different types of people whether it's women whether it's people who have um you know just kind of different abilities and what does that look like and everybody's coming to this from such a different place and you're not going to make everybody happy all the time but i think if you listen to them and really try to deeply understand it that's going to you're going to at least kind of win some points for that well, it's interesting. And I think you guys know I had Bouchon study on and he said much the same. He also said, 
it's important, you know, that we know today is not the same as six months from now. It's not the same as six months ago, but it's very interesting because this idea of people who maybe have less of a voice or that, you know, executives should be talking to their teams. If you're dealing with an organization and you're seeing they're not doing that, or I'm sure some of my listeners are thinking my boss isn't doing that, or maybe they're thinking, oh my gosh, I haven't done that. Where, where do you start with that? Because that's such a big question. And again, you might have like within the framework of your whole organization, how much can you do with your individual team? And so just how are you seeing people successfully think about that question? Well, uh, the clients that I've been having these conversations with, it has really started with, in a, first of all, an awareness that like I as a leader might not actually have a view of the world that is consistent with my employees. So it's kind of first bringing them to that awareness that actually there is value in getting some different perspectives. And then it can be done, you know, for some of my clients, it's very informal. It's just kind of like, um, you know, virtual coffee chats, understanding what's on people's minds, what's going on. For others, it's a little more data driven. So it's actually looking at what's happening with our retention, with our turnover. If we're losing employees, what's driving that loss? Are we losing a certain type of employee? Are there some trends there that we need to understand and, and be looking at? So there's no right answer to this. Uh, I think the important thing is that you get out there and really start listening and understanding your employees, all the people who are under you in your organization. And what that specifically looks like, you've got some flexibility there. I want to come back to this question of, um, you mentioned sort of what would a success look like for all these people in terms of, again, let's talk about inclusion. And I have a few other questions, but I want to actually rewind <laughs> to a question I was planning to start out with, which is, you know, I think for some of our listeners, culture is it's pretty nebulous, right? Like maybe you know a good culture or culture you don't like, but what does culture really mean? And then how does it impact strategy in terms of, you know, we've talked a little bit about success here, but when you guys are talking about culture, how are you even defining that? Yeah. So the, our definition of culture is uh, ways of thinking, feeling, believing, and behaving that determine how we do things about here. Thinking, feeling, believing, and behaving that determine how we do things around here. Um, and for us, the most important part of that is the behaving. You know, we believe that you can act your way into thinking rather than think your way into acting. So we talk about critical few behaviors. We talk about um, how to how to build those behaviors into your organization. Um, but our work is all focused on behaviors. We don't ignore the other stuff. We understand it. We think through it. But the behaviors are how we change organizations and evolve cultures. And in terms of how does a culture uh, impact strategy, and I'll make this maybe more finance specific as well. When I started working with finance functions uh, ten years ago or so, I you know I talked to uh, I was you know fresh out of MBA talking to an old grizzled finance partner, and he said you know the the future of the finance function is the same. It's been the same for the last twenty years. <laughs> like the future of finance has been more technology, get the data right, optimize your processes, streamline. You know, so that's that was always kind of stuck with me because it's it's kind of the same now as well, right? Business strategy certainly changes how you differentiate in the market, the capabilities you need have changed. But finance's North Star is always to add value to the business, um, to support the business's decisions, to give them the insights that they need to make smart decisions, and to you know make sure that the, the reporting is there, the numbers tick and tie, the, the external uh, reporting is accurate. And so when we talk about finance strategy, um, we, you know, there's all sorts of consulting sounding terms, but it's really to be this kind of performance architect, right? To be the strategic partner to the business. 
And so that's finance's North Star. How do you be that performance architect? That's the strategy. So then the question becomes, how do you use culture to make that happen? Um, and, and to answer that might require just a little bit more of me blonde to kind of understand that well. But to make that happen, you first have to understand your finance culture. You know, what, what are your cultural traits? How do you operate? What are you like? And in my experience, there's kind of three dominant culture traits that uh, happen in a finance org or that, that, that characterize a finance org. One of those is risk aversion. If you're risk averse, the good thing is you make sure you have high quality. You make sure your numbers tick and tie. You make sure everything's accurate because you're externally reporting to regulators or to whomever. And that's really, you have to have that exactly right, right? So you over-rotate on quality. The con to the risk aversion is that you're slow. It takes you time to do stuff. Um, so that's one, the risk aversion. The second is uh, consensus-driven. You know, the good side of consensus-driven is that you uh, get a good alignment. You make sure everyone's seen the numbers. You make sure everyone's aligned to that. You know, if you're making assumptions around business cases, everyone's seen that, right? Again, what's the con? It makes you slower. Then the last one is uh, analytical. And so analytical is great. Very critical thinking, helps you get the numbers right, helps you kind of think around new analyses to do. But again, what's the con? makes you slower. So when you look at a finance function that's trying to be a performance architect in this overall environment that has to be nimble, has to be fast, has to be competitive in that way, what a finance function then aspires to do usually is to be faster, to be more innovative, right? So you have this culture that, tend, that has a lot of good characteristics that tend to make it slower. And you have CFOs and controllers, controllers especially, because they have to make sure the numbers tick and tie, have a need for more speed to be that performance architect. So then the question becomes, so you got to understand what your strategic aspiration is as a finance function. You have to understand where you are today, what the pros and cons of that are. And then you have to define the behaviors that are going to help you reach that, become more innovative, become faster, while not losing out any of the things that you have to deliver. And so when we talk about culture, and then you have to you know, embed that in your operating model, you have to measure and monitor it. So when we talk about culture, though, we talk about what is your strategic aspiration and how do you define the behaviors and embed those behaviors to help you achieve it? All right. So before I, I go on and ask more questions, I do want to ask two more level setting ones. The first one is, Christopher, and you guys have referenced this a few times, is the survey. So can you just share what the survey is and big picture, you know, who we who we talk to? Because I know we're going to reference it, keep referencing it. So I want to level set for the listeners. Yes. So this was the global culture survey that we did. We just released it. So it's the 2021 global culture survey. This is a survey that we do periodically every few years just to see how things are shifting. This year, we surveyed over 3,200 people in 50 countries to really just get impressions around what was happening within um, people's companies related to culture and performance. And in particular, we were just really curious to see was culture kind of, we put it, as we put it, is culture the, uh, the hero or the villain in your company's pandemic story? And uh, so through these, uh, through this survey, we got some just incredible insights into not only what was going on, but also these differences in perceptions and this kind of gap between what leaders thought and, and what workers thought. So my other sort of level setting question is, do you think culture only comes from leaders or is it also workers? And like, what's the role of the different parties 
Yeah. So culture is really created by every single person in the organization. If you think about how Gus defined culture, it's really around how things get done. It's how work gets done. So every single person through their every, like the totality of their individual actions and then the cumulative nature of, of all the individuals in an organization, how they're acting, that is what creates the kind of dominant cultural traits of an organization. And when you understand that, that's when you can then start to, if you want to make a couple shifts or try to bring your culture better in line with strategy, that's how you do that. So certainly leaders play a big role in terms of what we call signaling behavior. So the signals that leaders send to the organization through their actions and through their words, but really it's something that, that everybody contributes to and everybody can also shift. The other, I just wanted to add to that as well. Um, there's a, another, for folks that are interested in this, another great culture thinker, uh, Edgar Schein. Um, he, he talks about the way culture evolves a lot. So like, you know, as, as practitioners, we don't necessarily do a lot of academic thinking about culture. Like how does a culture evolve? We think about how do you use it to accomplish something or how do you, how do you figure out what's wrong? Right. Cause sometimes people don't know it's a culture issue. They, they think it's something else, but Edgar Schein talked about it in two ways. He said, it's one, how it's, you're encountering a problem. How do you solve that problem? You know, do you solve that problem with an analytical approach? Do you solve that problem some other way? And then how do you teach other people how to solve that problem? And so as those two things are happening, that's how culture is kind of forming. And, and so like for a business example, if, uh, if you encounter a problem, sales are down, you know, and you spend a lot of money on marketing and the sales go up, well, you've solved that problem. That becomes part of your culture and you teach that to people. And so over time that, hey, we solve problems with marketing becomes almost an implicit assumption. People see a problem, they might react with, hey, we, we need to spend some marketing spin, and they never mm -hmm. actually look at root causes. And so, you know, with finance functions, I'll give you an example of how kind of an implicit assumption might be lower levels of detail. You know, like an implicit assumption might be, hey, we solve problems by being very analytical, and we teach people to be very analytical, challenge the assumptions, get granular, you know, have this depth of analysis. And so when a finance function sees a problem, they're implicitly going to you know, address it by how do we solve this at the lowest level of detail? How do we make sure all the numbers are perfectly accurate, right? And then, and then what, what ha happens over time, that just gets, you know, that slows them down. And so, uh, you know, maybe a quick story. Can I tell a quick story about materiality? Of course. <laughs> we had, so allocations are always uh, a pain point in finance functions, right? How do we allocate, you know, infrastructure spend to the business, uh, and make sure that they don't complain. They feel like we are there getting charged for overhead that's actually supporting them. Yeah. And so we had one business leader, uh, and this was actually a finance shared service, so a little bit of a nuance there. But okay, they had the overhead. This this business leader was like, "Give me more. I want to understand. You know, buy the drink. How much I am paying for all of these things." Okay. So this finance reacts to the business, and, and especially if you're, you know. If you're a finance function, you find yourself kind of always reacting to the business. You know, the best finance functions are able to push back, right? Mm -hmm, but this mm -hmm. client had a finance function that couldn't do that. Okay, so allocations, they had a, they hired two or three people. Uh, actually, it was more than that. It was five people to do all the detailed allocations for this business leader. So that's how they, they were doing that over time. Well, you know, the, the, this business, you know, over time, this business leader, you know, got a different job. Someone else came in the role and was getting all these details from the allocations. So that person in the business hired two or three people to take the allocations, summarize them for him, and then present it. So you had army over here, details, army over here, summarizing, doing, doing that. And we finally put that together. 
And it was, it was one of the better consulting moments I had. Cause I felt like, you know, I was like, <laughs> wait, you don't have to do this, you know? So, so that, that is an example of like in, in the culture of the finance was details, you know, it kind of evolved over time to serve the problem of, you know, serving this business. And then as that evolved, the nature of the problem evolved, the, the culture didn't evolve with it. And so they end up costing more and being a lot more ineffective. Yeah. I'll, it's hard for me listening a bit because as a former, I used to be a practicing audit partner. And so, you know, details are kind of in my blood, but I, I definitely get the point And I do think that's a good anecdote to explain it. Um, one, it's funny to me, you used the reference an army here and an army there, because I do have an army question for you. Um, and I know this is for businesses, not for the military, but if I think about your four things, thinking, feeling, believing, behaving, I think are the four. If I think of stereotype of the army, you just tell people what to do. It doesn't matter what people are thinking or feeling or believing. I guess it matters how they behave. And so from a cultural point of view, is it important, even in, I'm trying to use that as a more extreme example, to have that like buy-in from your workers or your troops in your case? Or is that like you get to a point where like, okay, they can think what they want, but they still have to do what I say type of thing. Wouldn't it be easy if it was just, just do what I Of just course. Say, just, <laughs> that's I say, why I asked you the question. <laughs> yeah. You know, believe it or not, it was actually, uh, th- that's not the case um, in the army. It, um, at least in my, you know, it's, we, we talk also about subcultures, yes. you know, monolithic cultures exist, but there's all these subcultures, right? In the military, it's, it's in, in, in business too, it's driven a lot by uh, leaders, and so your units and everything else. But uh, the Army does a good job of trying to create a pretty standard leadership culture. And actually, the reverse is true. Um, we have we had this idea of the strategic corporal. Uh, you know, low-level people make decisions that have strategic impacts. Um, you know, most negatively, Abu Ghraib, right? That's kind of the, you know, the most, the most negative. But th- there's also a lot of positive impacts that the, the low-level uh, decision-making can have. But no, my, my soldiers, like if I, if I said something that was uh, a dumb or a bad idea, my soldiers would be like, nope. <laughs> they would just, they would just uh, let you know pretty quick, especially as a, as a young officer, you know, your, your enlisted soldiers let you know pretty quick if you have a bad idea. I, uh, w- one time, this was in training that I kind of saw this happen. This was uh, before I was commissioned, but we were, um, you know, I wanted to be a hard charger. So we were going to get, uh, we were out in the field doing training. We were going to uh, chow, right? And, uh, had everyone wear their Kevlars, right? These, and this was the really uncomfortable Kevlar helmets. Are, they're off. They're much better now, but they were awful back then. And then I look over to another platoon. No one's wearing Kevlars. They're just eaten. And I was like, what? And I went over to that platoon to see what was going on. And the platoon leader was a guy who had been a ranger before, before he went to West Point. And I was like, his name was uh, Ryan. I was like, Ryan, what, what's going on? Why don't you guys have your Kevlars on? And he said, because we're eating. <laughs> And the point was, <laughs> the point was one, don't, don't make things harder than they need to be. But that's an example of like the initiative of a soul. He had been a, an enlisted soldier before he came to West Point. Yes. That's the kind of initiative that the soldiers in the military take. They, they tell you when you're being dumb. They're like, no, we're not going to do it like that. And, and uh, you can argue. And if you argue, you can force it, but it's, it's almost always a bad idea. And similarly, you know, in business, I, we, ha- we have this idea in culture called authentic informal leaders. And these are the people on the front lines of your business that are maybe master communicators. They're the person that everyone goes to to get the, get the details. They might be master motivators. They, they've tapped into, you know, whatever gets you excited about your company or about your work or about being a finance person. Um, you, you know, being you know, a finance person, one of the exciting things is you're, you are in the middle of all the information. You, know, you, you understand the details. You understand what's driving the business. And you're using your knowledge to help you know, the business leader who hopefully they know finance, but maybe they don't. You know? 
So that's the, the, the authentic and formal leaders tap into those sources of energy and they motivate other people, right? So there's all these, there's other kinds of authentic and formal leaders as well. But one of the things that we advise uh, lead CFOs and controllers uh, when they're thinking about how to work with their culture is to know those authentic and formal leaders and to tap into them. Because when you're trying to think of the behaviors that are going to make you a performance architect or however you want to evolve your business, you need to go to the front line or the middle management and say, hey, what, who's doing this well today? What behaviors would help us break down barriers, right? That bank teller to the call center, that wasn't a leader that came up with that. That was a bank teller that came up with that. So, so these ideas are everywhere in your organization. And you got to tap into kind of AILs to make that happen. In the Army, that's pretty standardized because you have NCOs and officers and you enlisted people in many areas, not all, in many units are empowered to speak up. Uh, and that, that ultimately helps you get to a better place. So this idea of people being empowered to speak up, I actually think goes full circle back to the bank tellers that became call center people. And then Christopher leads to a question I have for you of um, culture being a competitive advantage. Because again, if the reason I asked that troop question is because I do feel like, I mean, I've audited companies where it was kind of you know, everyone was too scared to speak up. They did stuff that was stupid. And, you know, even the example Gus gave of three people on one side doing work that three people on the other side created more work for them. And no one even cared about this. Like you see that because no one wants to speak up. And so how can you use your culture as a competitive advantage versus a disadvantage? So the most important thing to do is make sure that your culture and your business strategy and your operating model are all aligned. When you get those three in line, that's when great performance happens, whether human capital performance or business performance. Um, can I share a couple um, kind of statistics from the survey that speaks yes, to this? Because it was a really, yeah, it was a really interesting thing that we got into. So one of the things we found was that um, really culture enables business strategy and activates the operating model of a company. So specifically, companies that said they had uh, a distinctive culture were more likely to see, were 48% more likely to see an increase in revenue, 80% more likely to see an increase in employee satisfaction, and 89% more likely to see an increase in customer satisfaction. So some really interesting um, things there. And the other interesting thing we found specific to this kind of COVID-19 pandemic period is that 79% of organizations that increased revenue during the pandemic said their culture was a source of competitive advantage. So I love these statistics because they're showing me that people do actually see there is mm -hmm. a business linkage to this, right? And often when we're dealing with the finance function or we're dealing with people who, you know, who numbers are their lives, they, they sometimes have this like aversion to culture because they're like, this is the squishy stuff. Care. I'm a numbers yeah. guy. I'm a numbers woman. I don't, I don't, I'm like, give that to HR. That's not my thing. But what's interesting, if you are as a finance function, if you're trying to have a high performance performing finance function and you're trying to have an organization that understands numbers and what drives numbers and there is a willingness to challenge when you think the numbers are wrong or your reporting is slowing down because people can't make decisions like these are all behaviors around numbers and around finances that tremendously impact your organization. The issue of challenge and constructive challenge is such a huge one 
and one that we see so often at our organizations when people are either afraid to say when they think something is wrong or being reported incorrectly, whether mm-hmm. knowingly or unknowingly, mm-hmm. right? So whether intentionally or unintentionally. And it's always interesting when we go into clients, one of the first questions we ask is, you know, okay, are you risk adverse or do you embrace risk? Now that's an easy question to kind of like flippantly answer. But then we say, oh, great, you you embrace risk. Fantastic. Um, the last three people who, you know, made mistakes, what happened to them? Were they fired or were they promoted? Are they even still around? Um, and so you kind of, when you get at the specific things around, well, how does an organization react to these things when somebody says, you know what, these, the, the, the numbers that are being reported aren't right. What happens? And that tells you almost everything you need to know about the culture related to, you know, kind of numbers and finances and financial reporting. Yeah. And that's such a great question because I, I bet 99.9% of the people listening to this podcast would say, I want to be in the organization that encourages people to speak up if the numbers aren't right, if they see something wrong, hopefully maybe even a hundred percent of them. So what if you're in a culture and that's, again, let's assume you're not the leader, but a worker, but where that's not encouraged, is there a way to make change if you're not the leader or to just have to absolutely somewhere else? Okay. Well, it's, it's, you know, it's, it, it, let me say uh, it's hard. Yeah. I have a I have a boss, and uh, I, I just am sometimes uncomfortable speaking up to my boss. You know, so yeah, uh, yeah totally get it. Um, and then there's a lot of dynamics. So there's no there's probably not an easy answer. But you know how how to speak up. So one of my clients was a bank, and they had the similar. They, they were actually in uh, in in uh, they were a credit union, and they had this. Uh, they call themselves the fastest snail because the the credit union industry you know is kind of slow moving, and they wanted to be more innovative. What was interesting about their culture is they kind of had this, I'll call it father, mother knows best. So it wasn't so much they were afraid to speak up. It was that, oh, well, he's my boss. He knows best. And it was really, it was really, it was kind of a wholesome, it was very wholesome culture, right? It was very nice, wholesome culture. They just didn't speak up because they didn't feel the need to challenge. Mm -hmm. And so they were just kind of going along and everyone, you know, they were, they were one of the best banks or best credit unions in their industry. They they were really happy with themselves and they've done a great job. They won a lot of awards, et cetera, but they wanted to be more innovative, right? They were trying to break the, they were trying to, you know, push themselves. And so to encourage people to speak up we go back to behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, and we didn't come up with this. We were talking to their, we identified their authentic informal leaders, put together a team of like 15 people from across the org. And they said, you know what, why don't we figure out a way to kind of uh, surface? How do we surface this productive conflict, right? How do we surface people speaking up? And their idea, and maybe it's a little trite, but their idea was um, the devil's advocate. And so this was a symbolic act. Every leader was asked, when you start a meeting, identify a devil's advocate. Mm -hmm. So you kind of create the space. You create permission for people to speak up. To make that successful, though, because we all know there's plenty of leaders not like that, right? Had to be top, had to be kind of defined at the top. It had to have a strategic point. We are doing this because we need to be more innovative. Get the leaders kind of get that alignment and buy-in there. Then you can say, hey, symbolically, we're going to have an act where we want you as a leader to identify a devil's advocate. And then we want that person to speak up and be challenging during the meeting. And so that was kind of the symbolic act. And then we try to embed that in their systems and then measure and monitor. Did that actually result in more innovation going forward? So that was, that was one way uh, a client that was suffering it from a different way. It wasn't a fear-based mm-hmm. thing. It was a good thing. But that's how they tried to overcome and drive some of that those strategic aspirations. Well, I think that's a great example because I think it's a good point. That's not always fear. It 
it's complacency. It's a lot of, it's people thinking my work doesn't matter. Like there's a lot of reasons that someone might not speak up in these situations. So Christopher, going back to you, you know, I liked your statistics, um, but I'm curious about something. COVID in a way brought out the best in some companies, but I'm also assuming because of the stress created by the pandemic and all the change, it also illustrated where there are weaknesses in other companies. And so are you seeing now companies who recognize, hey, maybe my culture is not all I wanted it to be actively addressing that um, or or more so maybe than in the past? Absolutely. And, you know, one client in particular is trying to figure out so, so their culture kind of didn't, let's say, flourish as they had expected it to, right? And in trying to figure out why, you know, one of the things that they thought was going to make, was going to be more prominent was around um, decision-making and faster decision-making. And they actually found the opposite happened, that it kind of bogged down because there are kind of structures of hierarchy you know, were altered and just their, when their world changed, their ability to make quick decisions just crumbled. And so they've been really trying to figure out, all right, how do we fix that? How do we get back to that? Um, other companies are certainly realizing that their resources for things around mental health, well-being were completely insufficient for what they needed. Policies to give flexibility to parents or people, you know, caring for, you know, caring for their parents or just people who needed to be in some kind of a caregiving environment that wasn't there. And, and, and from a, from an organizational culture standpoint, it was, there were environments where people felt like they couldn't speak up and said, you know what, like my kids are driving me insane. I need to take the afternoon off just before I lose my mind. And it was an organization where like that just wasn't, it kind of wasn't accepted or wasn't mm-hmm. acceptable. Right. So I think it has, you're exactly right, Heather, this period of the pandemic has shown like great stuff about cultures and it's showed huge gaps and deficiencies. And again, I think this is why kind of listening to your people is critical and also understanding, understanding your culture, like at a fundamental level, you know, we, so many of us go to the doctor every year, right? To get a physical, we get a full blood panel. We understand what's going on with our bodies, even though we might not like everything, <laughs> we might not like everything, but we at least, we have that insight, right? And it's shocking how many companies don't take a similar approach to understanding something that is so fundamental to them, which is their culture. Uh, so that's a lot of the work we do is really helping companies understand and get insights into their culture today. It's not good or bad. Again, it's like going to the doctor and getting a blood panel. It's not like a good or bad blood panel. It's telling you how is your body today? And that's how we think about culture. It's not good. It's not bad. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. How do you understand that? And what are the couple things that if you did differently would actually unlock greater performance and increase the chances of you, you know, really realizing your business strategy? Yeah, actually, I love the, that way of thinking because then you're not dwelling if I'm good or bad. You're just thinking, Correct. what can I do yeah. differently? So you actually brought us back to inclusion, which I'm so happy because since we started there and I said we were going to come back and you guys were talking about the importance now listening to your workers, but then especially in this environment that inclusion and thinking about all these different situations. You said, you know, you've got your parents, you've got your kids. I'm so thankful mine are older now. Um, 17 and 19 is easier than seven or nine or seven, you know, seven months. Um, but 
how do you, as if you are, let's say I'm the CFO or I'm the controller, my organization's bringing people back into the office and I know I have workers that this is not going to work well for how, you know, how can I help them work through this and, and actually even let my people know I'm open to having these conversations? Well, I think a, a lot of this starts with, um, with being, being vulnerable as a leader and, and again, recognizing that not everybody has the same situation you do and everybody mm-hmm. brings such, mm-hmm. you know, we all, we tend to, before the pandemic, um, to a large extent, we kind of like showed up at work and there was this expectation that like, we, we just like left everything at the door. And of course, you know, that started changing, I think maybe in the last, like, let's say six or seven years, but the pandemic just accelerated that we're now, we are all dealing with so much stuff personally, and you can't mm-hmm. even imagine mm-hmm. honestly what it is. So a lot of it is like coming to these things with empathy and kind of um, just a desire to really understand your people more than you ever have to really understand, to get to know them and understand what are they going through? Okay. Does this person have elderly parents? How are they doing? Mm-hmm. Like what situations are they in? If you have kids, how are they doing? Are they back to virtual? Are they back to, you know, in-person schooling? Like what's mm-hmm. going on? Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, Heather, like this, these are just the skills of a good leader is getting to know your people and getting to know their situations. So when something happens, you have some empathy toward them and you try to understand even if you can't really understand what they're going through, there's great power in saying, you know what? You're going through a lot right now. I might not be able to understand it, but I just want to acknowledge that like, I'm, I'm here for you and we're here for you as a mm-hmm. company and whatever you need, we're going to give that to you, right? So again, if you think about certainly everything that we've gone through, you know, re- more recently, certainly related to race, um, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, the black community, the Asian community, unfortunately, there are so many examples of this. And, you know, my black colleagues are living a reality that I, I can't even understand, but it's important for mm-hmm. me to say like, look, I, I might not, I, I, I live a diff- in a different reality, but I understand the pain you're going through to the, the, to the extent I can. And like, I'm here for you. And like, mm-hmm. what do you need? Like, just like, help me understand it. And I think that idea and that spirit is what we're suggesting, you know, leaders just really reflect on doesn't matter if you're leading a finance function, doesn't matter what your role in a company is, the need to be empathetic has never been greater. And what I would just add to Christopher too, there's just two things. One is it's important, I think, for leaders who don't naturally have as much empathy to understand it's in their self-interest. It's like enlightened self-interest. You're ultimately going to have a better outcome if you have engaged people. And the second thing is if you don't have it, right? Like there's just, I think Christopher and I are both pretty empathetic, you know, culture folks, you know, but if you don't have the empathy, if you just don't connect with people like that, then try to have someone on your team that does, or try to have your AILs have, have someone that can clue you in, right? Cause the more senior you get, the more removed sometimes you get, the less empathy sometimes you have. And it's important for you because of that enlightened self-interest to find the people that are going to shore up your, your gaps. And so this was one of the fascinating things that we found in the culture survey that we recently completed. There's a big gap between perceptions of senior management and, and employees. So specifically on this point, 61% of senior management said they believe that their organization encourages discussion on sensitive and uncomfortable topics. 
42% of middle managers and frontline workers said that, said, said the same, right? So almost a 20 point gap there between like what senior managers thought the environment they were creating is versus, you know, versus the employees. We also found a huge disconnect related to purpose. 77% of senior managers saying they felt a personal connection to the company's purpose, only 54% of the rest of the workforce said that. So really, like, I was very alarmed to see these statistics, to be honest with you. Yes, actually, I am too. But it's a perfect lead in. So I have a final question. I could keep going for another hour, but I'm going to ask you each a final question. So if you had one thing you could say, so you know, you had two minutes with someone and you're going to try to influence what they're going to do with their team or how they're going to be a member of a team, what's the one thing you tell them or where would you tell them to start? I know we've talked about a lot of lessons here. So uh, Christopher, I'll start with you. I would tell them that as a leader, never forget that everybody is watching you for cues and clues as to how you're feeling and how they're doing. Um, I often tell people back when we were in offices, if you're the boss, when you get off the elevator or you come into the office, every single person in that office is looking at your face to see, are you in a good mood or a bad mood? (laughs) Everybody is watching you for their cues about how they should be behaving and what they should be doing. And I think leaders often underestimate that. So that's, that's kind of the one, that's the one bit of advice that I always give to my clients, especially when we're, you know, kind of working on culture is everybody's watching you. And so make the most of that. I have to laugh. Um, this is total side. I used to have a huge team working for me when I was an audit partner. And they used to tell me because our floors echoed, they could tell by how fast I was walking, you know, whether, <laughs> how much I had on my mind. So it's a very good, that is very good advice you're giving because I used to consciously try to walk slower. So, um, all right, Gus, how about you? I can just imagine Heather racing down the hallway. Then you just like, oh no. <laughs> exactly. To try to walk slow and not stomp. So, all right. So, Gus? Yep. I would say understand and ignite the emotional sources of pride in your organization. What gets people excited to come to work for your company, for you, for your function? Tap into that and use that to, to drive the performance that you want. All right. Well, guys, like I said, this has been a fantastic um, conversation. I literally have like 10 more questions I could have asked you. So definitely going to need to have you back, but really appreciate all the insight today. Yeah. Thanks, Heather. Thank you, Christopher. Great. Good to talk with you, Heather. Thanks, Gus. That does it for today. To find a link to the full PwC Global Culture Survey, head over to the show page on viewpoint.pwc.com. Join me back here every Tuesday and Thursday for new podcast episodes so that you never miss an episode. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast Series wherever you listen to your podcasts and let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC's National Office Studios, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.